0: Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman.
1: Poet J.L. Wright was born in Minnesota and grew up in foster care. She was the first in her family to attend college and after graduating, traveled the central U.S. looking for a job and living in a tent or motel rooms. Even after finding a job, she could not afford housing. She learned about the plight of the working homeless and began writing about the lifestyle. When her foster father's health was failing, she moved back home to be with him and then continued her journey after his death. She began teaching in South Texas. She earned a master's in education and in 2014 left the classroom to travel in an RV with her wife and dog. She has published a collection of poems entitled Homeless Joy, an expose in poetry, which looks at homelessness from both the viewpoint of the concerned observer and the homeless person struggling day to day. Homeless Joy considers both the tragedy and comedy of being unattached to real estate.
0: This book is my perspective filtered with stories I have lived, seen, heard, and explored. No matter how matter-of-fact they may sound, I'm merely attempting to paint a picture of the homeless experience as diverse as the numbers of homeless Americans and to honor each of those perspectives. As a homeless person for a combination of over five years, I know the issue from a few perspectives. I have interviewed others to explore areas outside my own realm and interpret their stories through my own lenses.
1: This is J.L. Wright reading from her book, Homeless Joy, an Exposé in Poetry. And this is just from her introduction that she was just reading. And I'm calling your, your, your name, your pen name is J.L. Wright, but you're actually Joy. So if you don't mind, I'll call you Joy. Joy is fine. Well, Joy, why don't you continue in your introduction?
0: America, the land of the free, allegedly offers us safe harbor and golden opportunities. But that previously golden door is now brass at best. Think about your own family, friends, and acquaintances that currently are or have been homeless. It's not just the panhandler on the corner who's homeless. It's your sister who has moved back in with her parents after leaving an abusive relationship. It's your pizza delivery driver who ran away at 16 years old and can't afford rent so he couch surfs at friends' houses. It's the veteran you saw marching in the parade who doesn't know how to obtain benefits and lives in his car. It's the child living with his grandmother next door and his teacher who shares an apartment with another teacher and her child. You might say, that's not homeless, is it? The answer may astound you.
1: Yes, you say the answer may astound you. And even the very fact that we have the viewpoint. You have two viewpoints in your book, Joy. And what are those viewpoints that we encounter in your book?
0: I take the viewpoint of being homeless myself and have living the life of a homeless person as well as the the perspective of a journalist. I'm trying to tell the the point of answer the basic questions that people who have never been homeless don't understand. I answer the five basic who, did what, where, why, and when. And my book is laid out in that format. So each chapter is starts with a brief essay about who are the homeless people. Um, the next chapter is about mm-hmm. what life is like as a homeless person. I answer the questions as to where homeless people live and why they're homeless. And then I do conclude with my own perspective of what can we do about homelessness.
1: And yours is a voice that we don't hear because typically homeless people aren't able to write their story or tell their story. And I remember growing up, most of the what I read was about what happens in New York City because that's where writers were. So we got their viewpoint. And I didn't live in New York City. I didn't understand that viewpoint. I liked the writing. But you have, uh, give us give voice to a population that we don't hear from, and that's why I think your book is so important. Thank you for writing this book, Joy. Thank you. Well, the very cover. When I look at the cover of your book, uh, why don't you describe the cover of your book?
0: The cover is actually a picture of a shadow of myself. Um, I was sitting at a on a rock out at a campsite, and. My shadow was shining down on the sand, and I took uh, that photo. Um, actually, my wife, uh, Catherine, took that fo- photo of me, and we digitized it so that there are slash marks through it because even a shadowed self is not complete for, to depict what a homeless person really looks like.
1: Well, now, when you say slash marks, it's not—it's much more subtle. Maybe slash—it's it's, it's uh, artistic, these little lines, diagonal lines going across your shadow. And um, we—I wondered if that what happened to be you in this uh, illustration. But also the credit, then, all art by J.L. Wright, you, and Kay Smith. Yes, my wife. So you were just mentioning that uh, she was a big help— in, in you're writing this, and you are both the poet and the illustrator.
0: Absolutely, like and, and the photographer because each chapter starts with photographs, um, which is going to be really uh, important in my next book, which is Traveling Joy, which is going to be in Poetry and Photographs.
1: Well, you mentioned your next book. We're, we, no, today we're talking about Homeless Joy and Exposé in Poetry. But you also have a previous book. This Homeless Joy is not your first book. No. What was your first book?
0: My first book is called Unadoptable Joy, a Memoir in Poetry and Prose. And Unadoptable Joy really was the life work. Um, I believe one of the oldest poems in the book, Unadoptable Joy, was actually written when I was in high school. Um much editing had been done, but a long, a long, long process. Um, it's the story of growing up in foster care. Uh, I was uh, in foster care from the age of two and a half until my adulthood. Um, and uh, luckily enough, uh, I had been placed in a permanent foster situation, which was very unusual at the time, um, before I was five years old. And so... So you knew, you could be
1: confident that you wouldn't
0: be shuffled around to some other household? Not unless they wanted to get rid of me, and luckily they didn't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we talked about the cover of your current book, and the your previous book, Unadoptable Joy, there's no doubt in my mind who is depicted on the cover of this book, and describe this cover.
0: That is a school picture from first grade with the cat eyeglasses and the pixie haircut that was almost a bowl on top of my head by my <laughs> foster
1: mom, so. This is, in other words, this is you. That's absolutely Depicted on the mean. cover, and you have these kind of little lines that make it artistic. But you're an adorable little blonde.
0: <laughs> Yeah, my how things have changed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, when you were in school,
0: were you a good student? Because I would assume you uh, you were. I was. Um, I went to a very small elementary school called Alice Elementary. It's actually the building in Hibbing, Minnesota, where the Greyhound bus station first began, and. Um, the library was about the size of the studio, and I read every single book in it before I graduated from that elementary school in fifth grade. So
1: so you're a voracious reader even as a little child.
0: Very much so.
1: Well, why don't you read us— uh a poem that's the title, your your current book, Homeless Joy, you have a poem called Homeless Joy. And I was surprised, Joy, since that is your name, that you chose to use initials, J.L.
0: Wright instead of Joy Wright. Well, I use initials because I don't always want to be known as a female, Yeah, quite honestly. That's the reason most, well, look at uh,
1: the very successful women writers do that. But in your case, it fits in with the title of your book.
0: Yes, absolutely. So I have to, I have, to have a little vanity of my book name. So <laughs> Homeless Joy. An oxymoron I've become, an unsheltered feathered one, a grounded angel on a wing, raised on tabernacle on which to sing, creature comforts brought then sold, minimal living now is gold. A sense of well-being purely flowing from this homeless joy, much more knowing. Objects can stop your spirit from soaring, and the world's a big place worth exploring.
1: This is J.L. Joy Wright, and she's reading her poem, Homeless Joy, which is the title of her current book of poetry. And your, your poem, this poem, actually rhymes
0: Yes, this does. Um, I really enjoy exploring different forms of poetry. And so I don't feel like they all have to rhyme and they don't all have to have meter and they don't all have to have uh, formats that uh, are classical. Um, But I do enjoy the uplifting beat that you can get with a rhyme. um, And it just makes you smile when you read them.
1: Well, since you mentioned that, that's one thing I enjoyed was your versatility, that your poems are all different in, well, in subject matter, but uh, form, and some rhyme and some don't. And I noticed that this is in first person, an oxymoron I've become. So a lot of times when I'm reading your poems, because they are in first person, I'm thinking, oh, this must have really happened to her.
0: It has, and um, not all of my poems that are written in first person are my story. Like I said uh, in the introduction of this book, I'm trying to convey the message of the story of so many homeless people. Um, And sometimes I take on their coat of arms. Uh, I I, I want to relive the experiences that they've shared with me in a way that the audience may not know whose story that really is. and I hope I've portrayed it in a way that they feel comfortable—the the storytellers feel comfortable in, in being presented. Well, now, you
1: mentioned storyteller, and one of—I hesitate to call it a poem—tells uh, a story. And it's a little longer. Most of your poems are about a page long. This one goes uh, a page and a half. But it's, it's such a touching story. And Pam is the, person, the subject of this poem—
0: my friend Pam, would you read that joy? Absolutely. No one wanted to sit next to her because of her specific odor. Something worse than body odor. The stench of sour clothes, fast food, poor feminine hygiene, health issues and a hint of automotive oil. Pam was a former school teacher, well-mannered, intelligent, well-read, funny and definitely crazy the kind of crazy that spoke aloud to angels. She once called an IRS office to tell them her car was parked out front and to not consider it a bomb. Of course, she was sleeping in it, and the engine had died, so she couldn't move it. This was after Oklahoma, and she wanted to make sure the ATF did not surround her. Instead, She awoke to a SWAT team, all in black, masked faces, guns bearing down on her in her car. Luckily, Pam had been in similar situations. She knew how to respond. She came out, hands up, turned around and faced the car. SWAT decided to tow her car to a vacant parking lot for free. Obviously, this was small-town America and not the big city. Who knows what would have happened somewhere else? To supplement her retirement, Pam would get on her CB radio and invite truckers over for psychic massages. They expected something else, but they didn't get it. Pam was a regular at the clubhouse, where we met daily to discuss the paths of understanding. Most Most people who knew Pam tried to help her in some way or another. She was worth helping. She lived a normal life for a homeless woman. I liked her. With some discussion and much consideration, I decided to offer Pam a bath at my house. At the time, I only had a shower, and she said that although she showered regularly, she did not get to wash where a girl her age needed to soak. Sadly, she did not come over for the offer. Other people were not quite so kind to Pam, she would say you they would say you stink and move away from her sometimes people would call her crazy and when she got angry they would even call the police the cops asked pam to vacate the building and come back when she was in her right mind that wasn't an option for her she always forgave but never forgot i never know how she ended up homeless just that she deserved better I almost wished that she would get hurt to be able to get into an assisted living home. When I moved away from the area, I never knew what happened to her. When I meet other women like her, I always reach out and befriend them, like I did my friend Pam.
1: We're going to take a break, and then I'll be back with my guest, poet J.L. Wright, author of Homeless Joy. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. My guest, Joy Wright, looks at homelessness from both the viewpoint of a concerned observer and a homeless person struggling day to day. And that's so sad. You say, I almost wish she would get hurt to be able to get into an assisted living home.
0: It is, is such a plight when people are in between services, And the lines have been drawn to delineate who gets what. And this poor woman, she received her teacher's retirement, but she wasn't even old enough for Social Security. Um, And she couldn't get housing, you know, serious housing, unless she had gone on disability. And she wasn't—she was too proud to apply for disability.
1: Well, were you a teacher yourself at this time?
0: I was, okay. yeah. So um, Pam told me stories about wanting to still substitute, uh, you know, to make up income. And she just really wasn't was unrealistic. able to. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. unrealistic. But she didn't know how to make money to, to cover her bills.
1: Well, you end this uh, po- uh, poem, this prose, uh, I always reach out when I meet other women like her. I always reach out and befriend them, like I did my friend Pam. Now you have another a poem, and this is called "Best Friend," and you you write this poem called "Best Friend." And Pam was one kind of friend, but who was this best friend? Read that poem for us, Pam. Uh, enjoy,
0: <laughs> "Best Friend." My best friend sleeps with me, curls with me for warmth, sometimes on top of my feet, sometimes just close for comfort. My best friend would do anything for me, and I would do anything for him. My best friend sleeps with me, travels with me, eats with me, walks with me. My best friend keeps me safe, keeps me from being lonely and from having a home.
1: Well, I would be <laughs> terribly wrong to not think this. Your friend is a dog.
0: This this best friend was a dog, um, but it's the millions of dogs and cats and creatures that homeless people have that require additional uh, rent deposits and additional security so that they can get an apartment or a home, and it stops them from that from getting those homes often because it. takes money and it takes paperwork. Um, But I'm so glad when I see a homeless individual that has a best friend because they really are an important factor in the homeless situation.
1: I would think so. Uh, I have a friend who his wife died and his dog is so important in his life and he wonders if he could keep his sanity if he did not have this dog and you conclude this poem though my best friend keeps me safe keeps me keeps me from being lonely and from having a home that yeah. last sentence is kind of it's kind of surprising because we we have assumed that this is a dog and that it would this dog would keep you safe and keep you from being lonely but I don't know that it occurs to those of us not in this situation that the dog then keeps this homeless person from having a home.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, my current situation, I'm a volunteering for the Army Corps of Engineering and uh, at a campground in the area, and that campground uh, has taken on some of the homeless individuals from Paradise and Megalia currently um, because those homeless individuals have pets and they can't stay in hotels with their pets or they can't pay the extra deposit for their pets. And so even with that situation, the, the, and the pets are the only thing they have left from their homes. Um,
1: Well, since you wrote your book, your this topic has become all the more important for those of us who live in this area of the campfire. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, You're, you're, Homeless individuals are your neighbors. They really are part of your community. Um, when I was in Modesto, I, I attended the—they the, did an a independent film on the homelessness in Modesto, and they had a public forum on talking about some of the aspects that they're trying to do to help the homeless in Modesto. And one of the things that came across was the homeless people— they want to segregate them, but they can't segregate them because they are absolutely community members. And I met a few a few men in, in Modesto that actually called themselves resident of whatever street they lived on. So they were residents of 3rd Street or residents of 4th Street because they really are part of the neighborhoods. All of the people in Paradise that are here in Chico right now and staying in Orland and Redding and and Oroville, they're all our neighbors, and um, they are individuals that need to be seen as our neighbors no matter where they are currently being housed.
1: Now, it comes up in your book, too, the problem of employment. How can you have employment if you are homeless?
0: It is definitely a problem. Um, and this,
1: well, the evacuees from Paradise, for example, many lost not only their homes but their businesses. So what are the problems that you encountered uh, getting employment
0: when you didn't have a home? Well, the number one thing is mail. You've got to have a street address. So even if you get a post office box, some places still need to have a street address. If they need to do a background check on you, they want to know where you are at. Um and if you're living in a tent, you don't have one of those. If you don't have ID that shows a current address, if you have an out-of-state ID, you can't you can't apply for uh, assistance often. Um, so you can't uh, uh, get a new driver's license if you don't have a house and without a driver's license there's
1: so much you're you can't do
0: you're just so limited and it's just a vicious circle that the system has set up um, for the homeless and finding employment is ridiculous because if you don't have uh, a way of getting to work on a regular basis uh you, you have to count on public transportation public transportation is very limited uh, and, and it limits the hours that you work. And so it's very, very difficult to find a position to, that will work with you in your individual schedule. My
1: guest is J.L. Wright, Joy Wright. Her current collection of poetry is Homeless Joy, an expose in poetry. And you know what this is like to try to um, keep a job, to get a job. And, in fact, there's one of your poems that ends, I dressed, went to work. And this is your poem that's called Far Far Go Well. And you yes. say, uh, tell us uh, the background of this poem. This is on page 65 in your book. Um,
0: at the time, I was living in Austin, Texas. Um, I had moved there from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, and had uh, actually had a job because I moved for a, another job. I was living in a tent, and I had been living out at Lake Travis and a lot of the uh, county parks. And when I got a job, I needed to be in town. And so living homeless in town a little harder. And winter was coming, and it was rainy, and it was cold, and I needed a hard roof above me. And we found a place that... Um, was a Victorian building, uh, once a house. It's actually a historic house. It's called the Walter Tipps House. Um, but at that time, it wasn't quite being restored. Far- so you were able to stay in a historic landmark? I was, yeah, where no one else has lived there lately. Uh, it's called Fargo Well. It wasn't always a bank. It wasn't always beautiful. But before it was and after it wasn't, it was a place to stay. A piece of real estate, a place out of the chill of fall, before the winter rains, under a tar-papered roof, instead of a live oak tree. Across the street, where a rack of ribs wore a parka, as de cabeza stuck out its tongue, dinner was what I could afford, not what I could steal. In this building, now a bank, once a Victorian house, then a boarded up hellhole filled with fear and broken glass. How did I sleep? I asked the rhetorical question. I dressed, went to work, and found someplace else for us to go, not as dry, not as safe, not a house or a bank, but more mine. The title of
1: this poem is Far Go Well, and what does that title mean?
0: Well, the the Building has been converted to a Wells Fargo Bank, <laughs> but uh, that is the that that those words Fargo Well was a play on the Fargo Bank, uh, but it also was the well of depth that I had dropped to, or I felt like I had dropped to. Is um, I I stayed in this place that I would have never imagined. Um, a person with a degree uh, who was raised right, ever, ever living.
1: So the title of it is a play on Wells Fargo Bank, Fargo Well. Now you also have, uh, there was uh, a title of one of your poems that I found puzzling, and this poem you call Leslie in the Library. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, library,
0: and yet... There's no library in this poem, (laughs) Joy. Well, um, many homeless individuals in American history were hobos. And uh, the library is the cupola on top of the caboose. That is what the library is. So a good hobo will understand the term a library. They rarely, if ever, get to be in the library, but this particular hobo did get to get there.
1: Well, you say this particular hobo because this is one of the ones that isn't told in first person. Uh, This Leslie, we assume that this is about Leslie.
0: It is about Leslie. Why
1: don't you read that poem, Joy?
0: Leslie in the Library. While reading tales of hobo fate, a girl sees yards through a window. Boxcars call, adventures await. Thumbs her way through Washington State, a single dime under her toe— while reading tales of hobo fate. Unearned trust the strangers berate, specs lessens her on the down-low, boxcars call, adventures await. Tales till nightfall, noises come late, in the jungle learn who is foe, while reading tales of hobo fate. Friends rise, rustle, romp, Threats abate. After a cup of goodbye, Joe, boxcars call. Adventures await. In the cradle of a click-clack crate, an unknown town or sidetrack slow while reading tales of hobo fate. To be alive, choose wisely, mate. Watch out for doors and sulfur blow while reading tales of hobo fate. Boxcars call. Adventures await.
1: This is J.L. Wright reading from one of her poems in her collection, Homeless Joy. And you mentioned this boxcars and the term that in the past was used for people who were homeless, hobo. And what experience do you have with boxcars, Joy?
0: Well, I have very few, but I do have a dear friend um, that when she was in high school or late late uh, after high school, she— was working and watched the boxcars and saw a hobo jump in a boxcar and ride the rails. And she read a few books and decided to do that. Now, this was back in the early 70s and it was still extremely dangerous Um, and she got on fine and she got off with a roll but uh, (laughs) she met somebody who His name was Speck, um, who actually taught her how to be a good hobo. Um, But he couldn't let his friends know that he would ever help a woman or a young girl be a hobo. So he definitely taught her on the down low.
1: (laughs) So this was Leslie in the library. And then on the facing page, there's a poem called Life Below Ground.
0: Below Ground? Would you read that? Oh, what about this one? Absolutely. Life Below Ground. Living in the basement wasn't hard to do. The wood-burning stove warmed the space through. Apartment-sized appliances, laundry room with sink, fully stocked freezer, a bathroom in which to think. Two full bedrooms, a futon, table, and chairs, perfect to pretend house living without fares. Quickly got a job, I waitress, seven till five. Mom said, time to go, or I would never thrive. Now, this
1: is told in the first person. And to what degree is this you in this poem,
0: Joy? Oh, definitely. Who hasn't had to move back in with mom at some point or another? Um, This was actually a story of um, when my foster father was dying, and I returned home uh, to be with him, but uh, didn't have a job because I, you know, had left a job to get home. And so— To Minnesota, we might remind to people, Min- this is to Minnesota. To Minnesota, Hibbing, Minnesota, the hometown of Bob Dylan, uh, uh, one of my uh, patrons, I'm sure, um, <laughs> who—and uh, so living in the basement of my mom's house was a short-term agreement that that my mother allowed as an adult child— <laughs>
1: And that's why it ends with, Mom said, time to go, or I would never thrive. Absolutely, yes, yes. Well, you have uh, a poem in your book called Mangier, and I thought, hmm, and you spell it M-A-N-G-I hyphen E-R. And what is this poem about, Joy? This is on page 68.
0: This poem is about where I was living before I went home to be with my foster father. It was in Austin, Texas. I was working full-time. I was a kitchen manager of a respectable restaurant um, and could not afford rent, partly because I had a hundred-and-some-pound Labrador, uh, so one of those best friends that made it difficult to find housing. And I had an unemployed husband, and... um, The easiest way was to ask a friend if I could put my tent, because it was now winter, in their horse stall. So they had an empty horse stall in the backyard, and manger is where it was, in a manger.
1: Well, the only time of year we really use that word these days is in December.
0: Well, luckily enough, it was December, and that's where I was. Uh, My birthday is also in December, so... Shortly after Christmas. Okay. A tent in a shed, south on south first, near the end, not under the 40s sloped roof, but behind the white, picket fence beyond the garage, apartment amongst the trees, a single stall lean-to for someone's pony, once upon a time. It is where we put our tent. A small orange dome made by Columbia or the like from... Minnesota, South Dakota, Colorado, and New Mexico, this little tent home, now worn by winds and sun, not made for daily use, it leaked and needed an additional roof. So here we put it. I was spending my birthday, four days after Christmas, in a stable in the rain.
1: So we learn at the end of this poem when you're, it's your actual birthday, four days after Christmas. Yes,
0: absolutely.
1: After a break, I'll be back with poet Joy Wright, author of Homeless Joy. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. My guest today earned a master's in education and in 2014 left the classroom to travel in an RV with her wife and dog. Her book is Homeless Joy. You mentioned this poem starts with mentioning a tent, and you have to the sections in your, your book, the way you have it organized, you give a little prose information, and you mention the tent. This this is on page 61, by the way. See, most of us have seen tents tucked back in the bushes. So uh, just before that, you give statistics on what the U.S. government estimates uh, are homeless people, the numbers of homeless people. Would you read from that section of your book, Joy?
0: So a one-day prevalence of close to 650,000 sheltered and unsheltered homeless people nationwide in a 12-month prevalence of close to 1.56 million people who use emergency shelters or transitional housing programs. All of the homeless are, are considered homeless if they're couch surfing, if you're living with a relative, if you have extensive roommates. If you've been institutionalized, if you're living in a motel room, if you're even if you're in foster care, like I was as a child.
1: So as a foster child, you are considered homeless?
0: Technically, yes. I'm currently uh, considered homeless because I'm a full-time RVer. So I don't have a permanent residence. I don't have a sticks and bricks house that I go to. I, I live on six wheels. Mm-hmm.
1: So if you wanted to apply for a job, they'd say, well, Joy, what's your street address?
0: Well, which I... I keep a street address of a friend. So I I am able to maintain my mail with lots of assistance. And I'm sure, you know, that's, that's how we have to do it. There are places that you can pay to take care of your mail as a full-time RVer as well, that will give you a street address if you need one.
1: Well, uh, you also, this is in still on this section four of your book. And, uh, Why don't you read that next paragraph there?
0: Most of us have seen tents tucked back in the bushes, camps of cardboard boxes and tarps tied to trees. We think about sleeping bags under bridges and hope these people will go to the shelters when it gets too cold. We give money to the church-sponsored shelter, the 5 501c3 do gooders trying to convert bad dooters into christians or those that sometimes turn people away for their first for their own safety.
1: Can I interrupt you there for just a second, Joy? You mentioned we give money to church, sponsored shelter. And I have a friend who really doesn't like the fact that that's one of the requirements if you uh, avail yourself of our services. You're agreeing to um
0: participate in the rituals that are there assigned. Yeah. That that that, that absolutely happens. It absolutely happens. Um, and even worse, like the last sentence of being turned away because of your own safety. Um, I was in Galveston, Texas, and I was turned away because the shelter there had— uh, so few beds for women that it wasn't safe for the women to be in the shelter.
1: Well, the statistics you give, too, that uh, there's much more men uh, homeless than there are women.
0: Well, r- really, there it's its almost 50-50. Because we also have to think of all the women, the women with children that um, leave abusive relationships, the women with children that move back in with their mothers. Might um, not be
1: living on the street, but they're still considered homeless. Yes,
0: absolutely.
1: In fact, you give a definition in your book of uh, the government has a definition of what is homeless,
0: yeah, the, offic- homelessness. Mm-hmm. the official definition is found in Government Code 42. It's the general definition of homeless a homeless individual. Homelessness, or the terms homeless, homeless individual, and homeless person, means an individual or family who lacks a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. An individual or family with a primary nighttime residence that is public, or a private place not designated or ordinarily used for or as a regular sleeping accommodation for human beings, including a car, a park, an abandoned building, bus or train stations, airports, or a campground. So
1: this is the official government definition of homelessness. Yes.
0: And... But just because you're def- defined as homeless doesn't necessarily make you eligible for programs. There's the catch. Yes, you just mentioned previously a
1: catch that you've got to submit to uh, religious and uh, I ever use the word indoctrination? Or you've got to agree to go along with uh,
0: the rituals, n- the yeah. rituals that 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 some places require. You know, if you choose to eat at a shelter they that prays before the meal you are asked to participate in the prayer.
1: Well, the uh, section that we're uh, reading you were reading from section four, and you say that sometimes these places turn people away for their own safety. And why don't you continue reading that on the next page there, Joy this is page sixty two.
0: Consider the municipality that shelters those that fear. Pardon me. Consider the municipality that shelters those they fear will die on the streets in the depths of a miserable weather. Their doors close at the set hours. They exclude pets. Require possessions to be with them at all times. They have limited number of beds. Some will be turned away will turn away people without state IDs, such as those who have recently moved for a more habitable climate. Set out into the night, men sleep in vehicles, pitch tents in parks, women huddle in ditches or just curl up in a doorway, hopefully near a steam vent for warmth. Most of these places of respite are close enough to legal that the police will leave them alone, depending on the town. Other options aren't so legal. The homeless live in subways, abandoned buildings, office buildings, sheds, and garbage dumps.
1: This is J.L. Wright, Joy Wright, reading from her current collection of poetry, Homeless Joy, an expose in poetry. She has a previous book, Unadoptable Joy, which is a memoir in poetry and prose that she put together. Speaking of this, previous um, collection, Unadoptable Joy, you have a poem in your book called High School, Now What? And I wonder if you would read that book for us. That's on page 23, Joy.
0: Okay. High School, Now What? Dad didn't come to graduation. I wore new shoes, a new dress and shiny shoes. The car loaded with towels and sheets, ready to move into a dorm room. I wore a new dress and shiny shoes for the commencement party at home, ready to move into a dorm room where I met a principal's daughter. For the commencement party at home, hot for teacher did not attend, where I met a principal's daughter, with the desire to guide learning. Hot for teacher did not attend, summer work while parents are away with a desire to guide learning, encounters with a lonely man. Summer work, while parents are away, living in original sin, encounters with a lonely man, wanting to move in with him. Living in original sin, the car loaded with towels and sheets, wanting to move in with him after dad didn't come to graduation.
1: Now, since this poem is in the first person I wore a new dress and shiny shoes. The reader is led to suspect maybe this was a memoir.
0: It's kind of a combination of a memoir um, of what was occurring during my graduation time. But I also spoke to actually a young boy who um, told me this tale of how ready he was to depart um, and it was some of that, the, the, the gumption of, a, you know, a 17, 18-year-old of, I just want to go to college. Why can't I just pack up and leave today, the day after graduation? Um, but some of it was also the fear of his parents wanting him to leave. Uh, he, he was disconnected from them. Um, he's a member of the LGBT yeah, and um, he he didn't feel welcomed at home. Yeah,
1: didn't feel accepted. Yeah, because of his lifestyle.
0: Right. And I can relate to that. Um, uh, definitely can relate to that. Uh, I I'm very open about who I am and where I've been and what kind of life I've lived. I think you
1: were—it seems to me that you were on good terms with your uh, foster parents. Yes. You went back to help take care of your dad yes. as he was dying. And so uh, because of the fact that we think you were on good terms, this is rather sad that he didn't come to your graduation. No, he didn't. Um, Maybe he didn't realize it was important to you?
0: It it wasn't—it he. It wasn't an outing he was up for at that point. Um, my my foster parents were much older than average. Um, so he was in his late 60s before I graduated from high school. And so it was just like, eh, I don't I don't feel like going out tonight sort of thing. So yeah, it wasn't a big deal to him.
1: So when you were growing up, you, it sounds like you were fortunate in having the adoptive parents that you had the foster parents that you had
0: very fortunate. Um, I'm, I'm still, both of my parents have passed now, but um, I'm, I still am very close to my foster sister and uh, her, all of her children. Um, I was lucky enough that my biological brother uh, and I were actually placed in the, the home together. So we're very close as well. Um, and as adults, we've got to meet our two other biological siblings, and so very happy to have such a wonderful family. Very happy.
1: Well, you have uh, taken up writing. It seems you do indeed have a talent for writing. Thank you. So um, what, what forms of writing do you want to explore? Obviously poetry. What about you said you have another book now coming out?
0: Yeah, so um, traveling joy is also going to be poetry, but it's also going to be ph- photography because I'm an avid photographer. Um, I want to explore writing children's books. I have a couple that I'm working on uh, as a elementary school teacher. Much, much long out you of the classroom. You have taught a whole range of ages, <laughs> did you not? I, I, in your yeah, teaching career. I did, from three to adults. So, three year olds. Three year olds, yes. Uh, and very special needed, needy three year olds. I taught special education in early childhood. Um, I've worked with autistic children and elementary kids and special ed uh, adults, even, um, and even college. So, I've Definitely, taught the gamut.
1: Well, you in a way are in a role as teacher for those of us who have no experience ourselves with homelessness. And in fact, you at some point in your book say that um, how, how you would hope that the public would respond to homelessness. And this is toward the end of your book, the, the last section of your book. And what do you say?
0: Well, I really want people to understand that the best way to help anybody who you feel needs help is to have a relationship with those people. And so after reading my book, I hope you feel like you have that kind of connection with somebody who's been homeless.
1: You say that facing social issues head-on has the largest impact on change. And we... Here in the North State, not just here. I mean, when I travel Paris, the streets are filled with homeless. It's not just our problem, but we're the ones that have to deal with it. And it has gotten, the situation has gotten more dire as the years go by. And we can't seem to figure out what
0: to do, Joy.
1: Do you have any advice for us?
0: Well, the simplest answer is housing the homeless. Um, One of the most important statistics I found through my research was that there are between six and eight empty houses for every homeless individual. That means something as simple as taking a a closed mall and making it into a homeless shelter. That means every person who has rental property that's not currently on the market because they're waiting for the prices to be the right prices, figure out a way to use that property to help people. Um, Homelessness is not something that can be addressed from the sides. It can't be addressed by making sure that the drug addict is not doing drugs. It can't be addressed because the person who has a physical disability has to have that disability fixed before they can be housed. They have to be housed. And as simple as that sounds... It's the combination of all of the people with all of the money and all of the agencies getting on the same page. Um,
1: well, uh, I do. I feel like I should add, Joy, that um, I interviewed Steve Lopez who wrote the book about this musician, very talented musician who lived on the street, been to Juilliard, but he, and so they arranged for housing for him, and have, but he didn't want it. He didn't want to live in that apartment. He preferred living in the street. So I would assume that that's or rather the minority.
0: That is the, definitely the minority. I, and, again, I'm choosing to be homeless myself living in an RV and traveling, uh, traveling the United States um, and volunteering for my campsite. Um, but that's the minority. Most, most homeless individuals want something that they can call their own. Uh, and it's not always what we think that it should be. So even if it's a piece of property where they have a bathroom facility and a kitchen facility, um, something as simple as that, where they can still put their tent up, might be an answer, and we have to think outside the box.
1: Well, I think that has become obvious that we have to think outside the box. In your book, Books will help us do that. Thank you. Thank you, Joy. Thank you. My guest has been J.L. Wright, and her current, her newest collection of poetry is Homeless Joy, an expose in poetry.
0: You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.